Jill Dando, known to her family and devoted viewers as a reliable reporter and passionate investigator, was insightful, introspective, and powerfully persuasive inside of the journalism world. Her deep-rooted connection with criminal examinations and broadcast media, as well as her inclination to take dives into sensitive material and disputable cases, was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved assassination in the mid-morning hours of April 26th, 1999, leaving all who knew her across London, England, and the world grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. In the hope of providing more substantial reasoning built on observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the murder of Jill Dando and the collection of controversies left at 29 Gowan Avenue in Fulham, London. This is Cold Case Detective. Jill Dando's story began on the 9th of November, 1961. Born at the Ashcombe House Maternity Home in Western Supermare, Somerset, to parents Winifred Mary Jean and Jack Dando. At only a few months old, Jill encountered her first hardship, diagnosed with a blocked pulmonary artery and a hole in her heart. Yet it wouldn't be until after she turned three years old that surgery would be performed. Luckily, on January 12th, 1965, an operation was successfully carried out and Jill made a complete recovery. Growing up alongside her older brother and only sibling, Nigel Dando, Jill always held a deeply rooted fascination for television whilst flashing unlimited academic potential. Her gravitas was felt by both peers and instructors as she climbed her way through fantastic marks at Whirl Infant School Greenwood Junior School and World Comprehensive, where her affection for broadcast media was heightened after she wrote to DJ and radio personality Jimmy Savile, asking for him to find a way to get her on the television. Of course, this is a complex issue after his death brought forth a myriad of controversies. In 1979, Jill received head girl status at Broadoak's Sixth Form Centre after achieving high marks on her O-level coursework. Afterwards, Jill's journalism track began with courses at South Glamorgan Institute of Higher Education in Cardiff. It was around this time she joined the Amateur Dramatic Society in Western Supermare and the Exeter Little Theatre Company, contributing to the performing arts at the Barnfield Theatre and refining her public speaking skills. Even at the age of 18, Jill dissolved herself within radio and communications, volunteering at the Sunshine Hospital Radio. Outside of schooling, Jill obtained a reporter trainee position with Western Mercury newspaper through connections of her father and brother, fellow employees. While not known as a print journalist, Jill used these experiences and opportunities to navigate the news scene as a whole, growing both as a professional and as a storyteller. 
Half a decade later, Jill was scouted by John Lilly of BBC Radio Devon after she transitioned from writer to newsreader at the station for their early morning programming. This work took her to another BBC affiliate where she headlined Spotlight Southwest. During her initial time with the BBC, Jill was met with a personal crisis when her mother passed away after fighting leukemia for a year and a half. A couple of years later, Jill expanded her regional television broadcasting career, jumping to BBC Plymouth. It wouldn't be much longer before Jill's gravitas and exceptional persona led her to national television work in London, presenting BBC short bulletins on their BBC One and BBC Two television news. Throughout the first half of the 90s, Jill cemented her legacy across multiple shows, programs such as Breakfast Time, The Six O'Clock News, Holiday, Songs of Praise, and most famously, Crime Watch, which she spearheaded as a co-host and lead presenter in 1995. At the peak of Jill's popularity and position in British broadcasting, she won the BBC Personality of the Year Award in 1997, as well as claiming the title of highest profile amongst BBC on-air folks. Simon Calder, a writer for The Independent, wrote this about Jill in her obituary in 1999. Quote, only very rarely does a broadcaster become so much a part of our lives that the mere mention of the name is enough to conjure up an instant and wholly positive image. Jill Dando achieved this in a television career that lasted barely a decade. Calder wasn't the only one to offer these sentiments. Throughout her career, Jill was known for her stark professionalism, yet beautifully human touch she brought to her reporting. Despite a rigorous 80,000 mile escapade around the world for television, sports, and news bulletins, Jill made time for all those she interacted with, steering through controversy with grace and compassion. Her attitude was infectious and her potential was limitless, and everyone across Great Britain knew it the second her face appeared on their TV sets. Even her personal life was a point of focus amongst her fans, with many praising and applauding her dedication to her Baptist lifestyle and navigation of difficult personal tragedies. Many were eager to see her happily marry the well-known Dr. Alan Farthing in autumn of 1999, but sadly, she never had the chance. Fate had other ideas that morning of April 26th, 1999, a day in which Jill and the rest of the country woke up expecting to see her bring comfort to homes all around England for the six o'clock news programme. Instead, BBC viewers were met with a special kind of breaking news involving one of the most beloved and high profile personalities on television. In the early morning hours of April 26th, 1999, at around 10 a.m., Jill Dando leaves her fiancé Alan Farthing's home in Chiswick, the West London district. She is by herself and travels by car. A few minutes later, Jill pulls over at a garage to fill up her car with gas before heading back on the A4, then exits to Hammersmith and parks at the King's Mall. At 10.36 a.m., Jill visits the first of two fax supply stores, called Ryman's and Buys Paper. At 10.49 a.m., Jill visits the second, called Dixon's, and then makes a final stop at the link. Ten minutes later, 
and Jill exits the shopping centre. At 11.04am, Jill is seen driving west along King Street before turning around abruptly, going underneath the Hammersmith flyover and towards Fulham Palace Road. The last CCTV sightings of Jill follow at 11.10am, capturing her turning onto Manborough Road, thought to be a shortcut. Between 11.20 and 11.25am, Jill stops at Cope's Fishmongers to buy two fillets of Dover Sole. While inside of the shop, she receives a phone call at 11.23, the last one she would ever answer. Around 11.30am, Jill arrives back at her seldomly used home in Fulham. The house is currently in the selling market and rarely visited by Jill herself. A couple of minutes later, at 11.31am, Jill makes her way to the patio. At the front door, she reaches out, but before she can twist the handle, Jill Dando is shot once directly in the head. Bob Woffenden of The Guardian would describe this exact moment three years later in 2002, saying, As Dando was about to put her keys in the lock to open the front door of her home in Fulham, she was grabbed from behind. With his right arm, the assailant held her and forced her to the ground, so that her face was almost touching the tiled step of the porch. Then, with his left hand, he fired a single shot at her left temple, killing her instantly. The bullet entered her head just above her ear, parallel to the ground, and came out the right side of her head. At about the same moment, Richard Hughes, living next door, hears a yell from Jill. Later explained it, it sounded like someone greeting a friend. He hears no gunshots, sees no murder, but he does catch a glimpse of a man leaving the scene, a six-foot white male in his 40s, later understood to be a killer. 15 minutes pass by, and at 11.46am, Jill's body is found by Helen Doble, another Fulham suburb neighbour. Not long after, paramedics and authorities arrive on the scene. They immediately transport Jill to Charing Cross Hospital. About one hour later, Jill Dando is pronounced dead on arrival at 1.03pm. Six months later, after weeks filled with public mourning and scrutinised investigating, police combine over 2,500 interviews, 1,000 statements, and countless leads to build a vast yet promising portfolio of case data. Just north of the one-year anniversary of Jill's murder, law enforcement single out their prime suspect, known stalker and sexual offender Barry George. Barry comes onto police radar when it's learned that he lives less than a mile away from Jill Dando's Fulham residence and is surveilled by undercovers. On May 5th, 2000, Barry is arrested on suspicion of murder. Three days later, on May 28th, he is officially charged, presumably setting the fast track to solving Jill's death. A year passes by, and on July 1st, 2001, Barry George is convicted of the murder of Jill Dando at the Old Bailey in London. However, Barry continues to maintain his innocence. He appeals three times over six years, the third being successful in November of 2007, after the prosecution loses discredited forensic evidence. Another eight-week-long trial ensues, and on August 1st, 2008, 
85 months after the initial sentencing, Barry George is acquitted of murder and set free. Over a decade later, investigators and all followers of Jill's unexplainable assassination still stumble through theories and string together vast webs of unconnected clues, finding hot leads that take them only to cold corners, where answers are hidden by the massive amount of potential suspects, situations, and solutions. Amidst the chaos, to pick out a culprit and find a motive for this senseless killing, one thing was slowly yet surely agreed upon by close observers of the case and crime scene analysts. While it doesn't exactly answer the question of who killed Jill Dando, it does answer the question of exactly what happened. Fellow cold case experts hypothesized in 2008 that Jill was killed not by an amateur or via accidental manslaughter or in a senseless act of rage, but rather was murdered by a professional assassin, or at least by someone with the skills, stealth, technology, and resources to carry out an invisible crime, as invisible as an assassination can truly be. This type of slaying was labelled as a hard contract execution, in which, quote, the muzzle of the gun is making direct contact with whatever or whomever is being shot at the moment of discharge. But while the experts waited to say for sure if Jill's death was indeed that of a professional execution, Bob Woffenden of The Guardian actually wrote about the scenario way back in July of 2002, in communication with a British military intelligence officer who had in-depth knowledge of this exact type of crime. Woffenden wrote the following blurb, highlighting the most scientific breakdown of the assassination. Quote, from the outset, there appeared to be two vital clues to the kind of crime this was, the method of killing and the ballistics evidence. As Dando was about to put her keys in the lock to open the front door of her home in Fulham, southwest London, she was grabbed from behind. With his right arm, the assailant held her and forced her to the ground so that her face was almost touching the tile step of the porch. Then, with his left hand, he fired a single shot at her left temple, killing her instantly. It was very close to 11.30 a.m. The bullet entered her head just above her ear, parallel to the ground, and came out the right side of her head and into the door, leaving a mark that was a mere 22 centimeters above the doorstep. Of course, this type of intentional, precise way of operating begs the question of why carry out such an elaborate scheme? Well, Woffenden's intelligence helps us answer that question as well. As was previously mentioned, Jill's neighbor who had heard her shout did not hear a gunshot due to the silent nature of hard contact shots. This style also prevented a blood spray, which would keep the assassin clean of evidence. It was also an incredibly quick way of carrying out a murder, all happening in under 30 seconds, as was speculated by police. While the whodunit aspect of Jill's cold case has yet to be identified, the pool of possible perpetrators and trail of theories can at least be understood to circle around professionals with the backgrounds and materials needed to carry out such swift and immaculate violence. 
The unexpected homicide of Jill Dando brought forth an intense wave of scrutiny, with theories coming out of every corner of the globe as investigators and armchair detectives alike attempted to solve this enigma. Luckily, with the previous explained case point, a few of the theories are now rendered moot, weightless as they fail to consider the killing was carried out professionally. One of these theories was that Jill's fate was the unintended effect of mistaken identity. Because of the speed in which the murder was carried out, some considered that Jill was accidentally thought to be someone else by the killer. They were quick to point out that Jill had actually barely visited her residence for quite some time, due to her relationship keeping her out of Fulham. But police countered, saying regardless of time spent in the flat, the timing of Jill's arrival at her own home would signal it was intentional. Another one of the lackluster theories was that Jill was murdered by a mystery lover or envious ex-boyfriend. However, a crime of passion does not hold any water in the fight when it's obvious the killer was that of a skilled background. And secondly, it's highly improbable Jill was dating a professional assassin or had relations with anyone who fit the bill of an executioner. Almost no one in Jill's life, friends, nor family could confirm or even contemplate this theory. In the weeks leading up to her death, her brother Nigel told law enforcement that his sister had mentioned an unidentified male was bothering her in the days leading up to her death. However, detectives wasted no time waving off the claim, and their thousands of interviews resulted in enough testimony to rule it out, even collecting Jill's massive catalogue of phone records to find zero unusual patterns or suspicious conversations. After abandoning these hypotheses, investigators instead turned to looking within Jill's inner circle and to the people whom she impacted more clearly through both her professional contacts and to those who were connected to the stories she shared via news broadcasts. Law enforcement then looked into the business partners of Jill's, including her own agent, John Roseman, who came forward and outright told reporters he was indeed interviewed as a suspect. Police also interrogated those who could be considered as rivals to Jill, people both within the BBC infrastructure and those at opposing networks. Neither subset of people provided any leads. Eyes were then focused on groups targeted by Jill's true crime program, Crime Watch, folks who were found guilty via her investigative reporting or caught red-handed through her indirect influence. Authorities went through each one of her cases, picking apart details and honing in on these potential instigators. Yet, once again, this Rolodex of quote-unquote victims did not offer anyone with the abilities to carry out the precise execution. However, others have retaliated to these findings, arguing that the suspects themselves may not have killed her directly, but rather hired a contract killer to carry out their bidding. Police followed through with the theory, but again, found nothing to support it. Only a soft-boiled claim in 2014 produced anything that could be deemed suspicious on that front, when an unidentified suspect or suspects stated that Jill had investigated a paedophile ring in the 90s and then given her findings directly to BBC management. If this were true, there is a chance that such a dastardly organisation would have gone through the trouble of planning a vengeful execution. However, the BBC denied it was ever given such a dossier immediately after the claim was made. 
Through the smoke and mirrors, the finger pointing and the senseless guessing, the theory that fits the bill of a professional assassination with proper motive has its roots in former Yugoslavia, Serbia, and their involvement in Jill's political reporting. In the early days of the official investigation, another one of Jill's agents came forward with a lead. She revealed that a very intensely, angrily written letter to Jill had specifically mentioned the one-sided nature of a disasters emergency committee issue against Yugoslav and Serb territories, an issue that was reported exclusively by Jill. The letter did not explicitly threaten Jill's life, but it dripped with an ominous demeanor. With a possible link to specific instigators, people associated with Jill's murder trial dived deeper into an even more identifiable answer to who actually did it. Michael Mansfield, MC, the defense lawyer for Barry George, spoke at length during the initial court hearing about the Yugoslav and Serbia connections. In fact, he listed a prominent Serbian warlord, known as Arkan, as a possible ringleader. Mansfield proposed that Arkan could have called in an assassination request for Jill as revenge for NATO's bombing of the radio television of Serbia headquarters in Belgrade. This proposal made sense in a number of ways. First and foremost, the bombing occurred only three days prior to Jill's murder, on April 23rd, 1999. 17 people died as a result, along with 16 injuries, including innocent civilians. A swift and effective reaction would have been desired in the heat of the moment by Serbian crime bosses. Because the bombing took place at the radio television station, it would be fitting to enact revenge on an allied radio or television personality. Mansfield again theorized this would pair with Jill's profile as a prominent reporter and her recent broadcast appeal for aid to Albanian refugees, a controversial issue with Bosnian Serb criminals. Secondly, Yugoslavia had a track record for engaging in retaliation attacks, specifically assassinations against political opponents and their transgressors. While they were known for taking out Croatian subjects, they also had a history in executing other nationalities. In fact, Yugoslavian heads were on the record for taking out journalists, including one who had spelled beliefs in contradiction with Yugoslav and Serbia. This journalist was killed right outside his home in Belgrade in a similar manner to Jill Dando's situation, and only days prior to her assassination. Also across the board, Yugoslavian hitmen acted like the supposed hitman acted in Jill Dando's murder. They worked in small teams, involving a trigger man and a spotter or getaway driver. They planned their missions down to the microscopic details, often targeting their victims outside of their homes to avoid mistaken identities, and never left behind any DNA evidence. All of the key components match the Jill Dando homicide, and despite the police tiptoeing around the hypothesis, many journalists and outside investigators believe this to be the most viable explanation, looking at the patterns and history surrounding Jill and these southeastern European warlords. Before we divulge our hypothesis of Jill Dando's unsolved murder, we want to make known our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detectives are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each podcast, 
and we do not promise certainty or a guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. In regards to the obvious execution of Jill Dando, we believe that she was murdered by someone with a strong hatred for her work, either a vendetta in regards to Crime Watch or simply her multiple stances she took as a reporter. However, we do not believe she was killed at the hands of a hired contract assassin by Serbian gangsters. Here's why. In September of 2001, BBC heard from an unidentified source claiming that a man thought to be an assassin walked into a Portobello bar in central Belgrade and received immediate applause from his fellow customers, and admitted to murdering Jill Dando two years prior. It was a strange tip, and the assassin in the story was quickly connected to a Serbian immigrant from the United Kingdom named Milan Mitrovic, a protected alias. Mitrovic frequented the Belgrade Portobello bar, but told the Daily Mail in an exclusive interview in March of 2019 that he was never applauded there, never told anyone he killed Jill, and never killed Jill in the first place. He was quickly suspected by Scotland Yard due to his shadowy history. As a young boy, he and his family fled Yugoslavia to the United Kingdom, but Mitrovic went back to Serbia to fight Bosnia as a teenager for heritage reasons. It was there he gained an in-depth knowledge of weapons and the life of warlords, committing his first robbery at the age of 17 and descending into a life of crime. He served four prison terms and was truly shaping into the prime suspect for an international assassination attempt, but Mitrovic maintains his innocence. He admits that he met the Serbian crime Lloyd Arkin, but was not offered a contract by him to murder Jill. He says they discussed sports on the single time they met and nothing illicit. To provide the final proof, Mitrovic showed the Daily Mail his old passport, revealing that he had been in Macedonia from March 19th to June 13th, 1999, the exact time of Jill's death, giving him an official alibi and crossing him off the list of Serbian-connected possibilities. Even the lead gangster himself, Arkin, was eventually forgotten about. The BBC World Affairs editor John Simpson met with Arkin the day of Jill's assassination, conducting reports on the NATO bombings while in Belgrade. In an interview with police, Simpson told that Arkin told him he had never even heard of Jill Dando that day in April 1999, let alone called for her death. Simpson ended the interview by pointing out that if Arkin really wanted to retaliate against NATO by killing a prominent British journalist, he would have just killed Simpson right there anyway. Vengeance by the Serbian rebels would have necessitated a boastful conclusion. They would have taken credit for it, say many political experts. They would not have gone away quietly. In addition to the very low chance they could have pulled together a hit on Jill in the mere days it happened after the actual NATO bombings. Forensic results also lead us to believe the killing was not that of an actual professional bounty hunter. The Daily Mail wrote in their 2019 re-examination, the bullet, 2mm shorter than standard ammunition, would have a low muzzle velocity. The cartridge bore crimping scratches where a pointed tool had been used, possibly to tighten its grip on the bullets. This was not the weapon of a professional assassin. In addition, they highlighted the fact that a bullet was left behind on Jill's doorstep in the first place. 
Everything seemed so sleek and premeditated, but the fact of the matter is that a truly efficient cold killer would not leave behind such an obvious mistake. Despite all of this, we still believe the killer was intentional and had no remorse in their slaying, angry at Jill and most likely the BBC at large for their diligence in stopping criminals and making their political beliefs well known. Tony Hall, head of the news for the BBC in 1999, received threatening phone calls and angry messages from unknown callers in the days and weeks following Jill's death, potentially from the killer seeking further impact. Jill's national affection could have turned certain criminals or instigators the wrong way, and if she did indeed spur the wrong person into action, it's not out of the realms of possibility one of her reports lit the flame of someone who had enough intel and went to the extreme to solve their insecurities. While early reports stated that CCTV showed no signs of a pursuant against Jill on April 26th, and interviews with people in her circle contained zero hints that Jill was agitated or paranoid, new updates to the case suggest otherwise to the former point. Six separate people on Goan Avenue later stated they all saw a similarly built man on their streets, of a quote, suave or Mediterranean appearance, both the night before and the morning of the murder. This coincides with another testimony by an employee of the Fishmonger's store who helped Jill cash out that fateful morning. The employee stated an early to middle-aged man of the same build was seen hanging out by himself, wearing a suit and holding a mobile phone. The employee saw this man seconds before assisting Jill and could tell something was off, telling the Daily Mail he appeared bothered by indecision. Was this coincidence? Perhaps, but more than likely, this man is a suspect and may even be the one who pulled the trigger. What we do know almost certainly is that the death was not a botched robbery or attempt at thievery. Jill's jewelry and wallet were on her person, nor did she have any physical signs that an altercation took place, such as bruises or hand imprints on the skin or scratch marks. There was no struggle, just a yelp followed by silence. We will probably never know who exactly killed Jill Dando, barring an unexpected admission of guilt or unless the murder weapon is found. Whoever the assailant is or was, they had intent, they had skill, but they were not perfect. They were careful to perform as silent an assassination as can be done without a silencer, but not smart enough to remember to pick up the single golden bullet afterwards. They were intelligent enough to get in, get out, and make it happen quickly, but bailed out by a lot of luck. They were clever enough to catch Jill at her quiet, unused home, but not smart enough to be certain there would be no forensics left behind. In fact, a major clue or lead probably would have been obtained by investigators, but in the mad rush to resuscitate Jill by medics, the crime scene was disturbed beyond recovery. The close proximity execution might have resulted in a single fiber or strand of DNA to transfer to the body, but in the removal of Jill's shirt and CPR procedures taking place right there on the doorstep, police had no chance to inspect the scene. Not only was Jill lost there on the doorstep of 26 Goan Avenue, but so too was the biggest opportunity to identify who might have left her there. 
Despite the misfortune, this is not how Jill Dando will be remembered. Her lasting image will not be in a crumpled heap laying against her front door, but rather as a persevering and professional icon of global media, a storyteller by heart and a hopeful leader by soul. She was courageous, she was respectful, she was never afraid to buckle up and find the answers to life's most complex questions. She sought to do what we hope to do here at Cold Case Detective, bringing light to the forgotten victims of tormenting crimes and faithfully fighting to find those responsible for such monstrosities. She was a beacon, not only as a reporter, but as a brilliant human being. May we combine our efforts to keep her memory alive and seek out the deserved ending for the Jill Dando story. This has been Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so simply by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover. If you'd like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Cold Case Detective Podcast.